here we go. In five, four, three. Actors Talk Podcast, episode 48. Welcome, everybody, to Actors Talk Podcast, episode 48. My name is Tommy G. Kendrick. I am an Austin, Texas-based actor. I'm also the producer and host of the Actors Talk show, and I want to thank you so much for joining me. If this is your first time, thanks. I'm not sure how you found us, if it was through something said on Facebook or one of the other social media sites or however it was. Thank you for being here. I hope you'll find a home at Actors Talk where you can come for information and inspiration on a regular basis. Thank you. If you're one of the regular crew, thank you so very much. Hey, guys, guess what? Because of you, we just rolled past 275,000 total downloads and that blows me away that's a, about 140 different countries where people are downloading episodes of the podcast and i want to thank you very very much for making all that happen i want to thank you for being a regular listener and if as i say if you're a first timer i hope you will become a regular listener my interview guests for this evening are kim diltz and jt arbogast Kim and JT are actors. They are theater producers who are now film producers. I heard them being interviewed by uh, Stacy Parks at Film Specific, a wonderful site. If you're a filmmaker, you really need to know about the Film Specific site. There's just tremendous information there for you producers and filmmakers. But anyway, I really enjoyed the interview. And it was, um, I think, from a couple of years ago when they were first starting this process of doing Angel's Perch. They had a Kickstarter campaign that not only funded, it overfunded. And we talk about a lot of the things that they did correctly and right that were tips that you can use, even though the landscape may have changed in the last couple of years since they did their campaign. A lot of the strategies that they used are going to be successful if you use them now. It's good information. So if you have a crowdfunding campaign coming up, maybe you've had one that wasn't as successful as you had hoped. Give this a listen and see if maybe you can pick up some tips because, as I say, not only did they reach their funding goal, they actually went considerably over their funding goal, and that is unusual indeed. It's a terrific film, Angel's Perch. It's a small film. It is a character-driven film. It is a story-centered film. In short, it's the kind of movie that I really like. And the other thing about that kind of movie and that kind of script, it's the kind of script that can attract actors because they like the story and they like the roles. Even if you don't have a lot of money to pay them, they might just be interested because of the content. So keep that in mind. We'll talk about that. Get to the interview with Kim Diltz and JT Arbogast in just a moment. But a couple of quick shout outs. A little too late for quick, isn't it? I'm sorry. But first to, to Linda LeBlanc, uh, the director of Alumni Affairs at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. That is my alma mater. And Linda asked me to participate a couple of weeks ago in a mentoring program called Dinner and Conversation. I had the privilege of sitting with a group of 10 acting and production students from the theater program at Lamar. 
answering their questions and giving them some tips based on my own journey, and I had a blast doing it. I hope that it was time well spent for them. Some of the feedback that I've seen indicates that was the case, and that makes me feel really good that they got something out of it. So thanks to the students at Lamar. Thanks to Linda LeBlanc to the Alumni Association and for this program, Dinner and Conversation, a mentoring program. It wasn't just for actors. There were a lot of people there in different disciplines, each at a table of 10, talking with someone in their particular group of interest. And it's a terrific program. So thanks a lot. The other thing I want to say is to photographer Kathy Whitaker, who is the a photographer here in the Austin, Texas area. I just shot a new headshot session. It's my third time to shoot with Kathy. I have never been disappointed. I have always been more than satisfied. And I'm just, this is an unsolicited testimonial, but I want to say if you are in Central Texas and you need headshots, then you really want to give Kathy Whitaker consideration because not only does she shoot really great shots, but her rates are very, very actor friendly. So check that out. Kathy, thank you. I'm very, very happy with the new shots. I'll have some pictures up on the website and I already have a few up on Facebook. So uh, check those out if uh, if you're brave enough <laughs> to uh, click on a picture of me and, and enlarge it into a, a full screen mode or something. You just be careful and, uh, you know, maybe keep the baby's eyes shielded if you do that. So anyway, oh, man, I'm still having some problems with allergies. You may be able to hear I'm a little stuffed up here, but uh, such is life in Central Texas. Enough of all that. The interview with Kim Diltz and JT Arbogast, where we're going to talk about Angel's Perch and a lot of other issues involved with making a film and being actors who are taking control, to some extent at least, of our own careers by creating content and creating work. The interview starts with me asking Kim and JT about how they got started along this creative journey. I just sort of like to get a feel for where the creative spark came from. And when did you first identify that? Was it as a kid or did you not have a clue until you were in high school or college or something? Kim, what about you? Did you know from an early age that you wanted to be somehow involved as an actor, writer, director, somehow in this business? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I danced growing up. Um, you know, the, the sort of dance mom's dance, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and that was just something where like my best friend was doing it. So of course I wanted to do it. And when I went to college, um, when, when you danced in my hometown, you could not do any, like you couldn't do dance and theater. Like it was very competitive. So our, our dance teacher was very, uh, strict with what we did with our other extracurriculars. So I didn't really do theater until my senior year of high school, and um, I loved it, but I I was afraid of taking a, per- a career path that was, you know, inherently risky. And um, so I was pre-med when I went to college. It wasn't until my junior year of college that I really feel like I made the commitment, or rather, I realized that I 
I'd been through all of the other majors and really like, <laughs> I, I could not run away from my calling anymore. So That's a good way to find out if, if it's that thing inside of you that won't go away. That really, I think, is maybe the only reason to stick with this business. It has to be that strong, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to convince myself I could do something else. <laughs> I, I understand completely. I've been there, done that, and probably will again. You know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> JT, what about you? Were you a creative kid or do you have a background family who are actors or producers or something? Or how did you come to this life? No, no. My family, I mean, uh, not to say that my family's not creative, but because they are, but I didn't really get the theater bug until, uh, until late in my high school career. I was a singer, choir kid, chorus kid for a long time, and then got involved in uh, high school musicals there in when I'm growing up and my senior year of high school uh, I did you know we had the senior class play and then we did two plays for the drama class and then uh, we did the first musical I, I I went to a Catholic high school my last couple of years of school and uh, it was the first musical the high school had done in a very long time and that experience uh, was was a pretty great one for me I, I, we had a you know, good group of kids that was our cast. And I think, of course, you look back on it and you were probably the greatest show ever made. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but but when I got to, co- similar to Kim, you know, I got to college and, and thought I, I needed to take a more practical approach to life. Didn't necessarily think that this was the way I was going to go. I, in high school, was blessed with some great teachers as well. One of which, the, the guy who directed the, high, the musical that I was in was also a physics teacher. And I, w- had, a, I had a great interest in science um, when I was in high school. And so I thought... Well, here's a guy who has, has, he's got the balance, like he's figured it out. Like he, he, he does the science teacher thing and he does the theater thing on the side and seems to be very happy in that. So maybe I can, maybe that's the way I go. So I actually started out as a physics major. Um, I was headed down the path to be a secondary ed physics teacher. But once I got to school, um, it didn't take long before I started getting involved with some of the local theater groups on campus and then my second year I, I had I had sort of fully switched over to uh, to theater major and and that was yeah that was it. And I don't know about you guys but I was really shy as a kid but I had this desire to be a performer. Now, you know, talk about conflict, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I wanted to do it but I was too shy to get up in front of an audience. And it wasn't until my senior year in high school I've told this before, so some of the listeners will have heard this story, but I had to make the decision on on an elective. You know, would it be speech and drama or something else? I don't know, typing, maybe, you know, something. Right, right. And I really wanted to do speech and drama, but I just was too scared. And I just had to finally have a heart to heart with myself and say, you know what? This is your last chance. You've been <laughs> you've been putting this off all this time. And if you don't do it now, you it, it's gone. You won't be a senior but once, hopefully. And I did it. And it was my goodness. It was like coming home. You know, it was the, yeah. the whole world started to open up. I get email and calls from people a lot now of people that went a different direction and were afraid of following the arts because it was too it was too risky mm-hmm. and now they come back and say is it too late i'm 35 i'm 40 i'm 60 is it too late what's your opinion i get that kind of thing quite frequently actually sure. and of course you want to encourage people absolutely but i'm just glad that 
not, not that there haven't been a lot of bumps and bruises along the way, but I'm really happy that for the past 35 or 40 years, this is the journey that I chose. And, it, and not that it's easy, as I said, but I know it was the right journey. And it sounds like you two found your way also, and I'm really glad about that. Yeah, although, although you know, on the other end of this process, uh, <laughs> I think everybody still has their days. Absolutely. Stay. I heard an interview that you did with uh, Film Specific with uh, Stacy Parks. And I really didn't realize when it was, but it must have been a couple of years ago or so, because this was when you had just finished your Kickstarter campaign for, oh, yeah. for Angel's Purge. Yep. And Kim said something in that interview that just grabbed me by the throat and said, man, I, I need to talk to these people because this is something that I try to do with the podcast is encourage actors to take control of our careers and not sit around and wait for the phone to ring. I don't know if you remember what you said, Kim. You said that you, you had come to the point in your career where you realized if you were going to do the things you wanted to do, you basically had to take some control of that situation and you couldn't sit around and wait for some someone to call you and ask you to do that. Do you remember talking about that? Well, sure. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we, JT and I, you know, as we said, met in grad school for acting and, and, you know, one, they, you know, you're trained in school if you study acting to perfect your craft, but you're not trained in how to run your business. And I, I think part of it just comes from the fact that a lot of the folks who are teaching right now, um, you know, had their had the, sort of the heyday of their careers at a different time when the when the business was very very different. And I think now, I mean, it's it's just is getting more and more competitive. And you know, actors should never you know sit back on their laurels. Obviously, they should always be you know promoting themselves. But I feel like there's just been this huge shift where it's no longer enough to audition you really have to you really have to make your own work and i think that it's not just not even just because that's one of the ways you can be found it's it's one of the ways to keep your creative juices going i mean you know if you've if you if you're a working actor and you've got you go on 50 auditions and and you book one of them that's still 49 you know direct hits to your ego you know <laughs> 49 people saying no and so i feel like Making your own work is one of the best ways to, um, I don't know, to, to, to make it about doing your work rather than waiting for someone else to pick you. There has never been a time in history of filmmaking or movie making or video making when equipment and the access to the equipment that is necessary to make good quality products has been more affordable. It's still not cheap, but I have a Canon T3i camera that I can shoot a perfectly fine short film on. And I think that that applies not just to production equipment, but the tools available. As you you know, you mentioned our Kickstarter campaign, the tools available for uh, filmmakers to raise funds for their projects, to raise awareness about their projects, right. to to find the an po- audience. yeah to find an audience. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like the editing software and all has changed. Uh, there's there's just so much more accessibility, I think, for filmmakers now that that 20 years ago just didn't exist. So so the reality of 
creating something, it's just become much, much easier. I think that's true. That doesn't mean that it's easy. No, it, it absolutely isn't easy. It has become, possible. it is more possible. It, it's, yeah, it's not easy. It's not cheap, but it's more affordable and more possible. It, it absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, JT, you wrote the script for Angel's Perch. Had you written other screenplays before, other feature screenplays, or was this your first no, I had, you know, I had taken some playwriting courses both in undergrad and then in graduate school. So I had written things, but I had never written anything that I, that I felt really strongly about, that I felt was something worth pursuing. And even this, when I finished it, um, well, first I should say, I didn't go into it writing from the perspective of I'm going to create an opportunity for myself. It was a story that, that wouldn't really let me go. We... We lost my grandmother to Alzheimer's in 2008, um, and as I mentioned, my family being from West Virginia, from this sort of magical little place in, in Pocahontas County, which is sort of the southeastern uh, part of the state. It's just this gorgeous mountainous region that doesn't necessarily, as a, as a region or as a state, they, they don't necessarily get the love that I think they deserve from uh, most of the mainstream media. So. You know, this is not a, uh, it's not an autobiographical story. It is not, uh, it's not about me. It's not really about my grandmother. It's really inspired by the experience that my family had. And so I sat down to start writing this story that wouldn't let me go. And when I finished it, I gave it to Kim because I thought, well, all right, I'm done with this thing. And now what do I, what do we do with it? Uh, this, this is something I feel really, really good about. And, and um, she responded in, in such a positive way. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, talk about the Kickstarter campaign and Kim's comments. We were both at a place. I had just moved to L.A. not long before. And we were both at a place in the career where we were sort of tired of waiting. And you get to an age where it's, where it's like we got to figure out what we're doing um, in this, we can't sort of stay treading at this place much longer and continue to feel like we're successful or continue to feel like we're making any sort of impact in, in this career. And so that was when we made the decision to make it. And, and even the decision for me to be in it was a secondary decision. Yeah, let's, let's hold that thought just a second. But tell people really quickly, uh, just give a, a sort of a thumbnail of what uh, Angel's Perch is about. What is the story? Sure. The story uh, sort of deals with the relationship between a, a grandson and his grandmother. The story revolves around the character named Jack, who is living in Pittsburgh. He's a successful architect, and he is called home to his small West Virginia hometown when his uh, grandmother is found wandering outside. She's his last living relative uh, and has come to a place with the disease that she is no longer able to live on her own. And so um, Jack and the family friends are forced to make the decision and, and the challenging uh, difficulties that come along with making that decision uh, around what to do next. Do we take on the responsibility of becoming a caregiver or um, do we find a, a suitable facility that, that the person could live in? And it, it really was, like I say, uh, very much inspired by my family's um, battle with the disease when my grandmother was going through it. The, the choice, she was by herself for um, a very long time. And the, the decision to move somebody away from their home is a very big one. And uh, my parents, my mom and my uncle 
uh, didn't take it very lightly because she was so adamant about staying home. And so, it, it just, you know, it's so hard because it's not, it's not a black and white decision. There are so many layers of, uh, of questioning and so many layers of consideration when it comes to that making that decision. I wanted to write a story that dealt with that in a way that I felt like we hadn't seen before and also sort of depicted the community that, that I call my family and that we call our family, I should say, uh, in, in a way that we, that we also hadn't seen before. So that's sort of where the, the inspiration came from. Well, great. You know, in addition to what Kim had said about actors taking control and, and the discussion you guys had in that interview, I heard the other thing that grabbed me about your story and about your project was the story itself. You just described a big part of the life I am living. Mm-hmm. My mom is 96 years old. She'll be 97 January 13th. Mm-hmm. And she lived with us for 10 years until she did the the uh, stereotypical fall and break the hip thing. Right. You know? yeah. Yeah. And, she, and she's ended up in a nursing home. So before I started this interview with you guys tonight, I was at her nursing home where my wife and I are every evening to help her with her evening meal and get her ready for bed and all that. And there's almost not a day that goes by that mom doesn't uh, talk about how she wishes she was still at home, her home back in the little town she lived in, even before she came to live with us. It is a very, very difficult thing to go through. And for your parent, the, the, the child becomes the parent. In these yeah. situations, and there is an, there are millions of us baby boomers out there who are now of an age where our parents are old enough that we're going through these things, mm-hmm. and so there there absolutely is an audience for this film. And I've got to tell you that as someone who knows a lot about these issues, I found a lot of truth in your film, and I appreciated the way that you handled the story. It wasn't sappy or maudlin, but it was true and it was touching and. And it was just a very, very sweet film. So that's the story. When I found out what the story was, that also grabbed me. And I wanted to talk to you guys about it. Did the fact that you didn't have a story that involved gun battles and car chases or, or even, uh, you know, nudity or for a lot of four letter words or something, did that hamper you at some point in doing what you wanted to do with the film? I mean, it can be difficult to, to tell this type story, even though indie films and low budget indie films are really among the best places where you find films like this. Was it difficult? Well, you know, it worked in our favor because we made the film ourselves. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's funny. I, I was just telling JT the other day, I, I saw a quote, but I think it was in Variety. Penny Marshall, there was a quote where she said, you know, the kind of movies that I like to make aren't being made anymore. I, I can't get my movies made. And, you know, we've, we've had people comment on this film and say, you know, this is what movies used to be like. And, you know, I take that as a great compliment because, you know, the, the film is really about the characters. Um, but I, I would agree with you that it, it probably would have made it, this would have been, this film would have been impossible to finance had we tried to go to, you know, a mini major studio and, and, and given them this film, especially with JT in the lead. I mean, that just wouldn't have happened. But, you know, we, in terms of us making it ourselves, it made it much easier because it just meant that, you know, we just had to focus on the, the, the characters and the location and we right. had the location. And then, you know, and the material was so heartfelt that that made it possible for us to bring in these really well-known, talented, amazing actresses um, and, and have them work for scale for us because they just were so inspired by the script. But, you know, we had to make a real conscious decision 
you know, we had a discussion and I, and I said to JT, you know, we're only going to have this discussion once, but we have to have it because everyone is going to try to talk us out of casting you in this. And they did, you know, whenever we talked to anyone in the industry, they would say, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you going to, you know, I don't know, Jared Leto or I don't know. You Whatever. Know. For, for us, it was two things. One, obviously this was a great opportunity for JT, but also he felt this is such a personal story and he felt such an ownership of the material that it would have been strange. And, and now looking back on it, it's, it was so difficult. I mean, making a movie, everyone says it's so difficult and you just can't know. I feel like it's got to <laughs> be like labor. Like people say it's really hard and then you have a baby and you're like, I had no idea it could be that painful. You know? um, there is no way that we would have gone through this much difficulty if it hadn't been, you know, that there was this opportunity, I think, for him. So, JT, was was it difficult for you as a producer? Because you're in virtually every shot of the film. So you were you had a lot on your plate just as an as an actor. Is that a reason that Kim, you you're an actor as well? Is that a reason that you were not in the film so that you could concentrate full bore on production duties so that at least one of you could be single minded in that regard? Or did that have anything to do with it at all? That was exactly it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we you know there are two there's two there are two roles that I could have played. One of them is as a smaller role. It's the role of the wife, and um, I don't want to ruin it for the audience, but right. you've seen it. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't play that role for personal reasons the, you know, it, there's there, because of the storyline and because of the relationship between him and his wife, neither me nor JT wanted to get into that headspace together as a couple. Um, and, and so if any, anyone who's seen the film knows exactly what I'm talking about. And then the other role, you know, we knew that if we were higher, if we, if we put JT in the lead, that we were going to have to surround him with name talent. And so, you know, that's what we did with the idea that if we ever wanted to do this again, <laughs> I would be in the next one. <laughs> well, you have yeah. a great cast. You have have Joyce Van Patten as Polly, your the, the grandmother. Allie Walker is terrific in the film. Ashley Jones, Ellen Crawford. You have all these people that people will recognize, but they're not necessarily big names. They're, they're not names that if you were to take the film to AFM that are going to sell the film to foreign territories, probably. Right. Right. Yeah. But, but they're all terrific actors. And so and so they added so much to the quality of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, 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 we thought we got we got very lucky with the folks who came on board. And some of it was, you know, we reached out to Ellen was actually our first cast member. She she came into Kim's mind not long after we had started the process of, of looking at cast and and Allie we got because we put out a breakdown here in LA and her uh, fantastic agent at the time yeah. must must have known she was looking for character roles. G- gave because, her the script and wow. she agents don't yeah. usually give you know this is a ultra low budget like yeah. agents won't usually right. they they really want to keep these kind of scripts away from their talent. Yeah and she sure. wanted you know she wanted to come in and, and meet and talk to us because she was she had just finished Sons of Anarchy, I think, at that point. And so it, I think this was certainly a, a role in, in a completely different direction from that yeah. for her. And she led us to Joyce. We had a tough time finding our Polly. And she led us to Joyce because she had worked with her in the past on a, on a play in New York. And, and Joyce was a great get for us. And then Ashley was, Ashley was our last sort of name talent attachment and she she came we got her during production because we actually we actually had somebody else that we lost and and then Ashley we found Ashley through a referral I think it was from Ellen right was it from no, Ellen's I, agent? I, she popped into my uh, Ashley popped into my head but luckily we had a relationship she was she was repped by 
Ellen's reps. Yeah. So yeah. it made it possible for us to, you know, <laughs> agents really, you know, th they can open the doors and they can close the doors. <laughs> it sounds like you guys weren't working with a casting director or did you have a casting director? We did not. Yeah. No, we, we, uh, I think both of us had spent enough time on the other side of the table working as readers and, and going through the process of casting. We had both produced theater in the past uh, and so had been through the casting process enough to to save a little money on right. that. <laughs> well, did did that present any issues with you getting to these actresses that you wanted to to get to because the agents wouldn't take your calls? Did you have any of that? Um, not really. I mean, I did when when we had to recast Ginny. That was enormously challenging because a lot of the a lot of the women who I, who you know, at that point, because of the timing, you're just you're just making a really long list and just hoping someone is available because it's going to be, you know, it's like two weeks away. And um, and so, you know, what I ran into there was, I mean, yes, if we had had a casting director, I might have been able to get through, you know, to one particular agency that was very, very uh, non-responsive and not interested in talking to me. But in general actors want to work and agents know that actors want to work and even though they don't want them to take work that's not going to make them a ton of money if the film is already in production you know if, if you already have the money in the bank and you're already a SAG signatory they will take you seriously it's just a matter of whether or not you know some agencies are just like I am not going to bring this to someone I mean you know I scale for this film was a hundred dollars a day I mean this is okay so this was know. an ultra low budget yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 well so, this then this is where the script becomes so key yes because yeah. the actors look we we all know we want to play terrific roles Mm -hmm. And that's what we're looking for. And so in a situation like this, where you don't have a lot of money to offer someone, if you have them a, a wonderful role, and all of these ladies have wonderful roles to play, that means something. And if their schedules allow, and if their agents won't roadblock you because there's not a lot of money involved, that script is so, so important. And I, I can see that being a great selling point in this case. It was, yeah. And also, we structured the schedule. I mean, you know, we had 18 days in West Virginia to shoot most of principal. We did a few, we did two days here in LA prior to that, and then a, a day of reshoots um, on the other side. But we scheduled the, we built the schedule so that the folks that we knew we got, we would all, we would have them for a very short amount of time and be able to bang out all of their scenes uh quickly so that we we wouldn't have to have them for two weeks they wouldn't be out of la for three yeah. weeks yeah. you know like we we had i mean we had ashley for four days i think yeah. uh, all told mm -hmm. so um and that was uh, and she was just excellent in the she, film, that, yeah. yeah we i i mean you know as much as we talk about the fact that we that particular time frame of trying to find that role was difficult. I mean, we look back at it now and we look at what we got and we just, we couldn't be more so happy. happy. Like yeah. you, you get the right people. Um, if you, if you, if do the, the juju right is thing. good, if, if the, the juju, juju is good, good you right. get the right. right. So we got, we got blessed with a, with an incredible cast. Well, and not just, not just um, our LA talent, but our, but our local talent. No, I, I actually, I actually wanted to ask you about Homer Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Homer Homer stood out to me. Has he acted before? This was this was his first time acting, and he he was he's awesome. To, yeah. He's never he he never even did a school play. He was yeah. quick to tell us. Oh so. my goodness! I, I I saw this guy and went, oh man, this has got to be a local hire. 
and <laughs> and but I, I mean not not because he was not because of his acting, just because of his look. And I yeah. I didn't recall having seen him before. Yeah. He he is wonderful. Yeah, I really incredible. really liked him a lot, and I and, you know made a note to be sure and ask about Homer Hunter. Now, is he one of the musicians in uh, in the group that played in the in the film or not? I was, he is. Yeah. He yeah. yes. He leads the band. band. Um, that is actually his band. He's a bit of a local celebrity, and and honestly, more so now. I think uh, <laughs> we're we're thrilled to have propelled him. To yeah. Well, you can tell him startup. tell him to listen to this, and he'll get a really big head because I because I thought he was great. I re- I really uh, thought he was terrific. You know, that role, um, I've, I've told this in a couple of things, but that role, you know, I wrote it thinking Robert Duvall. Like, that was the kind of character actor that I had in mind when I wrote the part because I wanted, you know, kind of an, an older guy who was sort of ornery but lovable, a scene chewer, for lack of a better way to say it. And we had a, a hell of a time finding that guy. Well, I just it, it was just, and he needed to be a musician. I needed him to be a guy who could play music and sing, which, you know, those kind of things are tough to find. Um, And we didn't necessarily have the money to fly somebody in for the size of role that it was. So I had seen Homer play about a year before at the, um, they do a a homecoming every year and I'd seen him play. And I, I thought, man, if I can't find, if we can't find somebody, this, this could be our guy. And then we got back to Pocahontas County in pre-production and we were doing a local casting call and we couldn't find it. And more than one person had said to us, you got to get Homer. You got to talk to Homer Hunter. You should talk to Homer Hunter. He's Well, they were right uh, on the money. He yeah. was he was terrific. You know, you He's, can't really undersell the importance, especially for a, a low budget movie and a, and a and a small movie. And I say that in a, in a loving way. I I appreciate small sure. movies. I was in a terrific small movie called Dancer Texas Population eighty one. It's you know a terrific <laughs> small movie. You can't undersell or underestimate the importance of locations for these type movies and the value that they bring to the production, your, your look, your scenery, the trains, all of the ambiance that's in the film really pays off. And of course it almost becomes another character in the, yep. in the film. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was the goal that, that town that we should, well, the house that we shot in was my grandmother's house. That's the house my mom grew up in. Oh, she great. grew up in that town. Um, they helped to turn they, it's an old lumber town. Uh, obviously with the train and everything and, and the mill shut down in 1960 and you know like a lot of industrial towns in the northeast the, this little town was sort of faced with the decision of whether or not everybody was going to pack up and move away and find work elsewhere or they were going to figure out how to stay home and um, my grandparents worked with the state to com- and convinced them to turn it into a state park, which it's been ever since. And tourists come and ride that train up and down the mountain. And, and uh, it's, it is a, a hidden treasure, I think. I mean, it's just this magical place. I remember the first time I took Kim, she, uh, she was just sort of blown away by it. Yeah, there's that. And the music also is, is wonderful. And I'm assuming that was uh, original music. Or did you? Did you uh, it, it's it's a combination of original music and and some traditionals. Um, we again got so unbelievably lucky that we got um, Chris Eldridge Critter um, from he's the guitarist from the Punch Brothers to uh, compose for us, and so he pulled together this this old timey string band. These incredibly talented. 
musicians. And, um, and one of them in particular um, is just sort of this walking encyclopedia of traditional music. So um, they got together in, uh, in a, a, a freezing cold church in December of last year um, to record all this music and um we just we just were over the moon totally yeah it, it, it's wonderful well hopefully we're sprinkling enough details in here that people are are going to be saying hey yeah this music sounds intriguing the location <laughs> sound intriguing the story sounds good we better look we better search out this angel's perch movie and <laughs> and see so. and see if we can either uh, download it or, or, or buy a dvd a couple more questions and i want to ask you a few things that might be of help to other independent producers whether they're of actors or, or just uh, indie people who are starting out maybe on their first production and, and maybe you can give them the benefit. How did you, before we do that, how did you, uh, decide on your director? Is it Charles? Is it, is it, how do you pronounce his last name? Is it Hamey? Charles Hain. It's just Hain. Hain. Okay. Charles Hain. Because I look, I look on IMDb and I see a lot of credits as a cinematographer and some short films and things, but not a lot of feature film credits. Was he referred to you? Did you see some of his work online or is he a personal friend? No, we, we put out a, a posting on a few different sites. Charles came to us through the USC job board, and we, we wanted to find a director that this would represent a great opportunity for because we were at a place, obviously, where we knew that whoever was coming on board was going to have to be as hungry as we were if we were ever going to get this thing done. Very smart. We interviewed a few people. Five, I think, was what we settled on to interview. And Charles was our shortest interview. We, he, he sent us his, we had his reel first, and we had seen he had submitted his short film, uh, Oblivion, uh, Oblivion, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And beautiful. Just this beautiful, beautiful uh, film that we were immediately taken with his, first of all, his eye. Um, but also his storytelling. There was a great, uh, there was a great storyteller behind this little short. Yeah, a lot of warmth. And we thought, well, this guy, this guy might have it. But we, it's funny. We met with him. Uh, we were running. He was running a little bit late. We went over to his production company. And I, I had, I had to run across town to an audition in Santa Monica that had come up last minute. So I said <laughs> to him, I was like. Charles, yeah. I was like, we're only going to have 20 minutes. Do you want to reschedule? And he was like, no, we're only going to need 20 minutes. Yep. And I was like, oh, yep. all right. We're only going to need 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and he was absolutely right. I mean, you know, he's, he's so funny. He's, he, he's, his mind is he's, he's very organized and has very sort of, you know, a concise turn of phrase and thought pattern, but also has this incredible warmth. So you immediately felt that he was this you know, very self-assured, um, uh, professional, you know, young professional who yeah. knew how to tell a good story. He had a post-production house, so he was a businessman. And, you know, we just, it was for us, I think, love at first meeting. Yeah. Like we walked out, we got in the car and we looked at each other and thought, I think that's our guy. Like, I think that's, that's the one. And we had a couple of more interviews after that, but we, but we, uh, we, we, I think we were smitten. Uh, and Charles also had, a connection to the disease. His his grandmother um, also had it. Uh, he used to spend Sundays uh, going over to spend time with her and just read to her because she was at a point in the disease where that was sort of all that was you know possible. Yeah. Um, and so the script spoke to him in a in a in a great way that we knew 
we were putting it in good hands. Experience or no, right? We were putting it, we were putting it in good hands. Did you have any issues during filming JT because you were the lead actor and you're also the producer and it's also your first script? Mm-hmm. Were there any issues where you had to do any onset rewrites to, to solve a problem that you hadn't realized you had in the script, maybe? Or were there any issues like that that cropped up that were maybe tensions because of all the, the hats you were having to wear? Um, you know, we, we brought Charles on pretty early in the process. So you mentioned our Kickstarter campaign, which was in March of 2011. Charles was actually on board just before that. So we were, it was right around the holidays that we found him and started working together. So we had spent um, a year and a half uh, working on the script together, talking about it, rewriting, doing new drafts, and, and really honing in on the story that we, were, that we were trying to tell. We did one really final pass um, about a week before production started, and uh, we actually had a conversation about it uh, that... that at a certain point, I was going to take off my producer hat. I was going to hand the script over to Charles, and I had to. We had. I had to trust him, and I did. We had developed uh, the three of us. I think um, had developed Kim and and Charles, and I had developed such a great working relationship that I felt like we all knew our roles and yeah. we all knew what we were headed into. Um, from a producer standpoint, I knew if there was anything I needed that that to talk about or I felt unsure about, I would. I would talk to Kim about it. Um, and even on set, you know, we would play with things. But Charles, oh, he always sort of checked in with me, but not in that way that I had any sort of approval. It was just sort of like, how do you feel I about this? Feel, yeah. And, I, you know, I'd be like, I think that felt good. I feel, you know, and if we had a question around something, we would talk about it. But ultimately, at that point, it was, you know, it was his decision to uh, to make any real big changes. And then, obviously, the the buck stopped with Kim. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know the the interview that I heard uh, between you guys and Stacy at that time, you were looking at a budget you hoped of about half a million dollars, and yeah. I was just I was just listening to a subsequent interview about the tug rollout. Yeah. And to and and I just heard that just this this afternoon, and I, oh. and I, so I didn't know that you guys had to do some really uh, <laughs> dramatic reshuffling of of what you were going to do budget wise on this film, and what you did now, knowing that I didn't know that, and I thought, yeah. okay, this looks like a half a million dollar film, <laughs> you know, and, and and in fact it was it ended up being. A film that qualified for the ultra low budget agreement, yeah. which is a max of two hundred thousand. Yeah. So goodness gracious, you guys did a great job. <laughs> well, thank you. thank you. Yeah, we. You know, that was one of those things. We um, when we sat down, we we had initially intended to shoot in the fall of two thousand eleven. That was that was going to be our our start date, and then we got pushed off to um, the spring because we didn't have the money. Um, and, and then, you know, the weather becomes unpredictable after, yeah. after, after October. Yep. West Virginia becomes a, you know, <laughs> even the first year we were supposed to shoot the la- what would have been our last week, they got eight inches of snow. Yeah. So that was sort of like, you know, <laughs> you're always tempting the fates once you get into October. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, we hit, we were pushing for spring and then we didn't have the money in the spring. So then it was like, well, maybe it'll be in the summer and then we didn't have it then. And yeah, we had to, ha- we, I mean, we basically had to come to Jesus meeting with our cinematographer, Kim Kulata and Charles. And, you know, we said, you know, all right, 
we either have to shoot this in the fall or we're looking at pushing off for another eight months because of the weather. And, you know, we had taken money from people and promised them a movie. And, you know, at that point, you know, we had learned enough. <laughs> the good thing about it taking forever is that, well, I mean, it's funny. That's forever to us, but yeah, not yeah. In film. It's in not film forever. Years. Yeah. But um, is that, you know, we, we had gotten to the point where we, we understood the budget. You know, when I first, when I first wor- you know, worked with a line producer to put together the budget, I didn't know what half the things in the budget were. You know, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You're learning on your feet. And so by the time we made the call to shoot the film, you know, I knew enough about the budget to be able to have the conversation with them. You know, it was still scary to say like, hey, guys, look, we want to shoot this in the fall with whatever we're able to raise. Are you on board? Because they could have said no, absolutely yeah, not. Yeah. But, but, Actually, you know. Charles' contract, when we initially wrote it up, had uh, a clause in it that would let him out if we did not make it for a budget that was like $300,000. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So even then we were, we knew we were coming into a meeting that could be like, well, we're no, we're nowhere near that. Yeah. So if you need to bail, um, we're giving you the out. The Uh, the film looks great and it sounds great. Maybe more importantly to me, I'm really Mm -hmm. sensitive to sound on films. and I'm I'm sure you guys are too. And then it, and the, the tech credits are all just first rate. Were there any compromises, or I'm sure you had to make compromises because of budget. Where were the compromises you were able to make that you were able to make them in a way that didn't adversely impact the quality of the project? We didn't get our helicopter shot. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we, you, you know, you, you could use one of these uh, robocopter things. There was a moment. Uh, we, yeah, we, we didn't get, we, that was one, I, if there was one thing looking back that, I, that we thought we were, we were going to be able to try to find was, was an aerial shot coming in. Yeah. We had been given a helicopter. Yeah, we just oh, couldn't, wow. couldn't put it together, the, the insurance. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. So, um, did you have yeah. to rewrite any scenes that were too expensive to film? I mean, I think probably not. It's it's a fairly uh, simple story in the way of, I mean, that, there are no explosions or there's no action, yeah. that kind of thing. So did you have to alter the script at all because there was a scene that we just can't afford to shoot that? I mean, really simple things. Like there was a scene that took place in a nursing home and there was a scene that took place in a hospital room. And it, it, those were very, very easy fixes. And we made those early on before we even knew mm-hmm. what our budget was going to mm-hmm. be because, right. you know, it's just at a certain point when you decide to make the movie, you go to the script and you say, how can we save money before we even, right. you know, yeah. raise the money? Right. So. And we cut the, like right before production. I mean, because you, you're always still adjusting. We we cut a character. It really just came down to honestly, it was looking at what we were what we were offering to people to pay uh, as a as crew in terms of where they were in the sort of pecking order of the career. Because we got people, people came on to work for probably much less. We all worked for well, much every, less you know, than everyone, we. Everyone, everyone worked for a hundred dollars a day yeah, across the board. Yeah, there. yeah. So like, and, that's, you know, and also I think Kim Kulata, our DP, worked wonders. You know, if you're looking for like something for someone who's doing this for the first time, get a DP who has worked, who is used to working with nothing, because. Yeah. You know, you need someone who can be very, very uh, creative with not a ton of lighting. Yeah. I mean, sure, you always want more, but we had this incredibly collaborative team who had who was used to working with limited resources, and so they were really able to make pretty much everything happen. Yeah. It was a really uh, incredible community effort to yeah. get this film made. Speaking of community effort, you had a very successful Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. And and I had been doing some research recently, and I, and I don't know how accurate 
the numbers were, but the numbers that I found on the internet must be must be true. It was on the internet. I, I Google searched <laughs> it. So, but it, but the the numbers that I found indicated that for Kickstarter, only about forty four percent funded on Kickstarter, and the number on Indiegogo was far less. Actually, yeah. mm-hmm. was there a reason that you decided on Kickstarter versus Indiegogo when you decided to do a crowdfunding campaign? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think you, you touch on it in some ways. We had done a lot of research into both platforms. Um, I think they both have uh, pluses and minuses, obviously, when you're going in. But there was something for us on, on the Kickstarter side, there was something about a goal and uh, an amount of time. That because, you would, because Indiegogo I, doesn't give you a debt. Like Indiegogo, if you don't raise the full amount, you still get to keep whatever. So yeah, for people at that time. Know, at yeah, that yeah, time, yeah. yeah. And, right. and with Kickstarter, if you didn't raise it by a certain date, you didn't get anything. So. Yeah, and there was something about the the urgency, pressure and yeah. the urgency of that that we we both responded to as we were looking at campaigns and uh, and felt like this was um, this was the way to go for us. We we felt like it was a it was an all or nothing. Uh, this was we we were already in. Yeah, this was going to be an all or nothing uh, venture. And right. the other thing too was oh. that um, was that uh, at the time when we did it, Kickstarter had much much more traffic mm-hmm. um, than than Indiegogo did. So we actually, I mean, there were you know there were a couple people who found us just because they liked Kickstarter and found our project. I mean, uh, there's a, a a reporter who followed us from the very beginning, and he found us on Kickstarter because he thought it was a fascinating platform. Mm-hmm. So and he's out of Roanoke, Virginia, and had been looking for a story. That that was local that he could highlight Kickstarter as a platform and how it was, you know, changing the way artists regionally were able to make work. And so he, we sort of became uh, a great case study for him and he became a great, champion a great proponent and yeah. champion for us in terms of, of tracking our story with, uh, with the region um, on the local news broadcast. So it was, it, yeah, I mean, there were a few things that went into the decision, but we, but it ultimately, you know, was the right one for us. Well, it was you, your goal, as I believe was $25,000 and you ended up raising what, 32 or 30, 31 or 32. So are there just quickly, I've had you here a long time and I don't want to abuse your time, but are there a few things that you did right? Yeah. Obviously there are a lot of things you did right for your crowdfunding campaign, but are there some highlights that you could say, look, if you're going to, if you're going to do a crowdfunding campaign, here are some things that we did that really, uh, helped us meet and exceed our goal. I think um, I think for us, one thing was we knew who our audience was before we started. We had spent a lot of time talking about um, a very defined audience for this film and that would respond to the story that we were trying to tell, and then laying out the way that we would be able to reach them. And honestly, talking about it, the landscape of, I think, crowdfunding has changed so much, even in the two years since we did. It's so saturated now, yeah. That we did ours. But we, you know, we defined our audience. We figured out ways that we were going to be able to reach them. And we prepared a lot. So I, I think, you know, I think probably why most people, well, why a lot of people fail is that you know, there's all of these resources out there that show you, like, these are these are campaigns that succeeded, and they even break down, here's how they did it, and here's what was great about their campaign, and, you know, and down to, you know, the video, you know, one, I think one of the most simple mistakes people make is that they make the video about the, uh, more about the product than about 
their personal connection to the product. And so, you know, what we what we really saw is that people are investing in you as a team. They're investing, they're really investing in you as an artist. And so your passion has to really be evident in the video. And mm-hmm. so I feel like we did we did a lot of research into what makes the campaign successful. And the good thing is that I mean that information is really readily available. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of taking the time to to look for it. Yeah. And we also made a a, a conscious effort to have a content plan that we would roll out. We, we defined, you know, ca- uh, campaigns that tend to go longer than, we did ours for 45 days. Ca- campaigns that tend to go, right? yeah, no, I think we did 45. Oh, um, campaigns that go any longer than, oh, maybe it was 30. It was I don't have to look yeah. back. Uh, <laughs> it was one of those two. But I think we saw that 45 days was sort of the outlier. Like that was, that was the point where if you went any longer than that, there was a, a significant decrease in the success rate for campaigns because it's hard to sustain any kind of momentum for two months um, when you're trying to to raise money uh, or do anything really. Yeah. Um, so uh, we we set a really finite, a very specific amount of time. We had a very uh, specific content plan so that every post or every week we had something new that we were introducing about the project as opposed to every week just saying like hey we're (laughs) we're still here and we still need money Um, it it was a way for us to continue to sort of flesh out the story of why we were doing this and what we were and what we were all about and and members of the team so that we were able to be introducing ourselves to the audience uh, throughout that 30 or 45 days as opposed to introducing once with a video at the beginning and then just begging people (laughs) to, to, uh, to join in. You know, if someone leaves us a message on our Facebook page, one of us responds always. I mean, and it's that kind of, it's that level of interaction that people want. And it's, you know, I think for filmmakers who've been around for a while, it's probably a little bit strange because it's a new, it's very different than it was even five years ago. But you know, it really is a conversation as opposed to, you know, you putting something out into the world and just assuming people are going to pay attention. Yeah. And I think the incredible thing, uh, as hard as this was, I, there's, and there, there, there are so many things about it that I look back on and I'm just so grateful for. And, And one of the biggest is the people who this project has brought into our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it all came because people found us Either they found us on Kickstarter or they found, and they reached out and we met them and they became, they've become, I mean, we have some really, really close friends that we didn't know three years ago, yeah. like didn't know who they were. They didn't know us, but through this, we bonded over this and it's, it's, uh, they're, they're more than just supporters. They are, they are friends and, and, uh, colleagues, um, and people that we hope we will continue to collaborate with in multiple ways. Yeah. As we you know, forward. that, yeah. And that's how, that's how the business of show business works. Yeah. You, know, you forge these relationships and, and sometimes I know because this is an actor's talk podcast, I'm trying to draw lessons here as sure. actors. We, uh, over the years, I've, I've heard many gripe sessions for actors, you know, and, and often you'll hear actors bemoaning the fact that so-and-so always uses these same people. Yeah, you know, they always, why why don't they give somebody else somebody new a chance? Why does this person always get this or that? Well, part part of the reason is that there's a relationship there. There's a trust that's built up. They know what they're going to get. They know what these people are going to do. They know they're going to not let them down. And it's such a business that's so expensive and so time 
pressured that that is incredibly important to have relationships with people and know what you're going to get. And so it just makes sense whether you're a director using the same crew over and over and over, or you're a director who has a stable of actors you like to use consistently, the same rules apply. Yeah, I mean, and that's like, it is, you, you want to work with, I mean, it's people that you trust, but you, you want to work with people you like. Yeah. And, and we uh, were blessed all, I mean, it wasn't an ego on our set, no, like no, from the, from the people who were there volunteering to the PAs all the way up to, I mean, they're just, we were all, I mean, part of that, it's funny, Charles talks about uh, the area that we shot in. It's um, it's a radio quiet zone because of the observatory. There's and they're doing all these incredible stories now uh, about the, the area because they have these you know giant satellite dishes that they are scanning the skies. So there's no uh, cell phones for so, fifty square miles. Yeah, so there's no cell phones. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, which you know initially you would think like oh man that's going to be gonna shoot a that's going to be really <laughs> with, with all these people. But what happened was <clears throat> is that everybody was present and everybody was there. It's like work. summer camp. Yeah, and we. Uh, so we may, if we make another movie, we may just make that a thing that like we are a cell phone free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You'll no, leave but, your phones at the door. Well, it sounds like. A, about, oh, go ahead. Okay, I was going to say, speaking to to the thing about relationships. I mean, you know, again, one of the reasons it's really great for actors to make their own work and also like work in multiple areas of the business is that you start to understand, if you're able to look at an actor from the outside, you start to understand, first of all, like, what are the things that, you know, if, if you if you work as a reader, if you work in, in a casting office for a little bit, you start to see, like, why do some people not book? If you, you know, if you produce, if you write, you just, you have such a, a, a richer understanding of the whole process. But then also, you know, you see that, that creatives, there is an inherent kind of craziness that comes with creativity. And, you know, I would much prefer to work with someone who's crazy I know than to work with someone, <laughs> you know, just because it just makes it less risky, you know? Yeah. I yeah. Just, yeah. You know, so, yeah. You know what crazy to expect. Yeah. So, uh, just quickly, what is the timeline? You finished the script when, you went into production when, and you finished and went into distribution at, at what point? How long has this taken? We, we made the official decision to make this movie. I, I, was, I, I spent about a year writing the script, um, and that was before I gave it to Kim. Like I was, uh, before I felt comfortable uh, sharing it with somebody that in a way that I, that, I, that was more than just an exercise. Um, and that was in August, uh, August of, of 2010. Yeah. Okay. Um, we launched our Kickstarter campaign uh, in March of 2011. We, we went into principal photography in September of 2012. Yep. Um, we had picture lock uh, end of December. Yeah, it was right. December. Yeah. Yeah, because we brought a we brought a because we brought a what we thought was a pretty much final cut. And that was it. That was, so that was a year ago. You had picture lock. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's right. Yep. That was a year ago. And then um, January, February of 2013. We recorded, we were working on sound for January, February. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause we recorded music in December of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had, we had a final finished product in April. 
Yeah. Um, believe it or not, it took us. The, the hardest thing was the credits um, for various reasons. They they were the bane of our existence, and yeah. they took us longer than the whole edit. I feel like. Yeah. But was it we, a, a contractual issue or something? Else? No, it was just like it was getting them right. Oh, no, I see. You you do them and then a lot of names to keep up with. And just an intern doing it, so yeah, like, yeah. you know, I, I yeah, I'm still scarred from there it. There are several photos. <laughs> there are several Photoshop files with oh, transparent backgrounds that go into it. yeah. It's it's oh. a lot, and every yeah. time every time you did one because of the size of the render, it took a couple. It took a you know an hour, two hours, or a day to sort of like all right, we'll, we'll have those tomorrow for the two K, and then we can check. Like it was just oh, there were a lot of anyway. But right. and of course they came out with a program to do it all like right after. You yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay, so, so you finished, and did you sign a distribution deal, or is it being self distributed? We, we did a uh, we. Uh, we were exploring the festival route. We recognized pretty quickly that because of the type of film we are, we were not necessarily based on the research we had seen and what other film festivals were programming as an indie. Um, we were probably not going to be the right fit. I mean, we obviously did the the big ones. We applied to the big ones. But um, at a certain point, we had sort of recognized the fact that we had already defined our audience. We knew who they were. We had partnered with... Um, the West, the West Virginia chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and by which other uh, chapters around the country knew about us. Yeah. Knew about us. And we so, discovered Tug, which was, you know, for if if uh, listeners don't know it, it's yeah. A, tell it's, what tell what Tug is, because a lot yeah, of people may not know what that is. It's Tug.com with two G's, and it's it is a theatrical on demand platform. So basically, let's say there's someone in Ann Arbor who wants to see our film, they can say, "All right, Tug, I want to see this film." Here are three theaters new, nearby and three dates that I that look good for me. I will host this film, and by that I just mean that I will I will get the number of people who need to sign up ahead of time for tickets to sign up. So let's say that's I don't know sixty people. Tug sets it up, says, "All right, if you can get sixty people to sign up for their tickets by this date, it is on," and then it happens. Yeah. So it's it's incredible, and so when we found that, we realized that we could have a theatrical distribution, which, good Lord, there's no way we would have, even right. if we had gotten distribution, sure. it would not have been a theatrical film um, just because of the size of it. Right. Um, and um, and so we, we did a screening tour on our own, and um, so we premiered in June, and we played um, over 250 screenings between... Wow. Yeah. June and October. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now there's another platform that's available. It's similar called Seatsy. I think. Yeah. Did, did you guys consider that, or or I don't even know if that was available we, at the time you were doing it. Or we actually heard about Seatsy um, uh, when we were in the midst of uh, already working with Tug, okay. um, and uh, they are a little bit. They're they're similar, but I think they do a week as opposed to uh, 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 the event type atmosphere that I we see. were working okay. with. So you have to gather a lot. Your threshold is much higher. Um, and uh, we felt like we, we could have much more success for us um, creating one-off events around the country that would uh, allow us to build enough buzz for each of those um, to keep the train rolling. So, okay. So if, uh, people are, if people are listening and are considering this, so T-U-G-G.com, Tug.com is certainly one of the places that you want to look at for, yeah. for this type of a, a platform release. 
Austin. They are based in Austin, so there you go. There, yeah. oh, good, good, good. Okay, okay, so so when did your product roll out? It's available now online, I believe. It is, yeah. Where we, where we, can people get the film? Either for uh, streaming or for purchasing hard copies. Oh, so many places. <laughs> <laughs> off the off the theatrical tour, we we ended up getting distribution through um, Gravitas Ventures, and so they. They are handling our digital distribution, and they got us uh, into most of the major cable providers in the country. So we're we're available on demand in 100 million homes yeah. right now. Yeah, super. Um, yeah, and um, iTunes, Amazon, um, Xbox, Vudu, PlayStation, PlayStation, and uh, DVD and Blu-ray is available on our website through Amazon and a couple of the local vendors in West Virginia. So we are we are all all the information though is on our website. Uh, angelsperch.com people can check that out okay out. and we'll we'll have links to all of these things at actorstalkpodcast.com we'll have links to the website and to uh, trailers and all sorts of things about angels perch so people can can find that like, okay so what's next you guys after you catch your breath are you going back to uh just becoming actors or going back to the theater <laughs> has this uh, cured your filmmaking aspirations or do you have something else in development that we can look for down the road you know i think the idea is we would love to continue to make work you know people work at this budget level really kind of once and then they hope that it gets easier <laughs> so, yeah 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 sure yeah. In an ideal world, we would be able to take this film and leverage it into, um, you know, good representation that sees that we're capable of making work and, um, you know, helps us, you know, helps us get our work produced so that we don't have to wear 300 hats (laughs) for the next one. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that neither one of us feels like we're ready to, you know hanging up and go sell insurance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks guys. Thanks for being here. Is there anything that you want to say before, before we end the call? I appreciate the fact that we had the opportunity to talk to you. I, yeah. I, this is part of the great thing about making this is that we, uh, we have been able to connect with people like you, like you, <laughs> like, I mean, just people all over the country and even some people around the world who've reached out and we, we feel really, really humbled yeah. that this, that, that it's done what we hope. Well, it's what well, you've done. A, you've done a great job. God bless you. And thanks. Thanks a lot. I'll be watching what happens with the film and what you do next. I'll be really interested to follow your career. Well, once again, thank you so very much to Kim Diltz. JT Arbogast, thanks guys. This episode actually was held back a little bit because the prior episode, episode 47, which was with Lyndon Nelson and was all about video on demand platforms, had the 20 tips for video on demand distribution. That has been one of the most popular episodes of Actors Talk Podcast and a lot of feedback on that and a lot of downloads so i wanted to keep it active and featured for a little bit longer so my apologies really to jt arbogast and kim dills because i had thought that their episode would be on a couple of weeks ago actually then coming up after this episode is a, an interview with filmmaker tracy trost out of oklahoma tracy is the producer and director of several films, one with Muse Watson of NCIS fame and other films and television shows. A lot of people know who Muse Watson is, wonderful career. And that film that Tracy Trost did was called A Christmas Snow. 
And it's a very, very interesting lesson in filmmaking there and how Tracy came to become a filmmaker at the ripe old age of about 40. Hmm. Yep. Never too late, folks. And then after Tracy, the episode after that will be an interview with Jen Rudin, casting director out of New York, who has a new book called Confessions of a Casting Director. And then a couple of other episodes after that that I don't want to talk about yet because we haven't actually recorded them, but they're in the works. So join us back for the next time for Actors Talk Podcast. Thank you so very much. If you haven't subscribed, please do that. And one more thing, I don't mention this often anymore, but if you are an iTunes user, I could use reviews in iTunes. Not just the stars check, but actually a couple of lines of a written review. That would really help a lot. Till next time, God bless you. Thank you. Hope to see you in the movies. This is Tommy. So long. That's a wrap.